You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The consensus of the eyewitness account seems to be this. It was a solemn occasion. These people are lined up in the drizzling rain at the Springfield, Illinois Railroad Depot. People are coming up to see their state's favorite son, a popular lawyer, who had earned his income and his reputation and built a family in the town, a quaint frontier village that he helped to turn into a state capital. And now, as the holder of the president-elect, a town of national stature. There's no time to speak to each person. So Lincoln, he's just taking their hands and looking into their eyes, each one. A reporter says his face was pale and quivered with emotion so deep. Neighbor here, old Whig friend there, client, town citizen. Here's how Ward Lehman, his friend and bodyguard, described it. There was an unusual quiver in his lip and a still more unusual tear on his shriveled cheek. His solemn manner, his long silence, were as full of melancholy eloquence as any words he could have uttered. And then at this point, there's this thundering sound, and some of the crowd are startled, and it's not the weather, it's the train that's going to take Lincoln away. At this point, Lehman says, at length he began in a husky tone of voice, and slowly and impressively delivered his farewell to his neighbors. Every man in the crowd stood, with his head uncovered in the fast-falling rain. Friends, no one who has never been placed in a position like mine, can understand my feelings at this hour. Here I have lived from my youth until now I am an old man. Today I leave you to go assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon Washington. Unless the great God who assisted him shall be with and aid me, I must fail. But if the same omniscient mind and almighty arm that directed and protected him shall guide and support me, I shall not fail. The train leaves and Lincoln is off. And here, like most documentaries or most accounts of it, everyone's supposed to say, and Lincoln would never see Springfield, Illinois again. And that's absolutely true. But I find that to be too much of a hindsighted account. It is true, sadly, but it is also the summit of a career for a man that has been politically ambitious. And not just in terms of earning positions, that's the least of it with Lincoln, but being able to influence the direction of the country. And the train ride that will take him to the nation's capital is difficult at times, exhausting at times, but is also the zenith of his ambition. It was no ordinary thing. It was serious, 1861 high-tech, an incredible organization to create a novel way for the country that voted for the president-elect to see, at least get a glimpse or a wave from him. 
It's not to say his predecessors, Pierce and Buchanan, did not use a train. They had. Pierce, indeed, to much tragedy, the loss of his son in a train accident on the way to the inaugural. But this was different. Lincoln was traveling on the best locomotives. Several of them had to be changed at various places as different railroads had different tracks. He'd use over 20 different railroads. The engines were lightweight and powered by steam created by burning wood, a few by newfangled coal. With wooden passenger trains, with huge iron wheels, his secretary John Hay would say, the best Victorian styling in the Union, shellacked with orange spar varnish, enlightened by whale oil lamps in the cars, giving the wall a soft golden glow. Outside, the cars were dressed in national bunting, flags and ribbons on the outside, each car heated by a coal stove at the end. A telegraph operator rode along with the president-elect, and so did many reporters, but only those who were invited. In fact, no one got on or off this train without a special card from a man named William Wood. He was a railroad operator and a hotel magnate who would organize the entire 13-day trip that the president-elect was about to take. Wood was a friend of William Seward, senator from New York, was a rival to Lincoln. We talked about it in a previous podcast, how at the end of that 1860 election, Seward kind of turns and gets really into the Lincoln movement. The trip that Wood plans is not direct. It's not just to see D.C., It was to see people. He'd reach Philadelphia. He'd reach New York, but also the smaller towns. Danville, Tolono, Decatur, Illinois, Zionville in Lebanon, Shelbyville, State Line City in Indiana, Glade Run, Wilberforce, Fort Ancient, Euclid, and Denison in Ohio, Dunker, Palmyra, Memphis, Clyde, Chile, Fonda, New York, Newark, Elizabeth, and Piscataway in New Jersey. Magnolia, Perrymansville, and White Oak Bottom, Maryland, Pittsburgh, Smith's Ferry, Allegheny City, and Freedom, Pennsylvania. Some just got to wave as the train went by and know that Lincoln was in there, and people lined up for that, hundreds at some of these stops. Some actually got to see him waving out the window. Others got a rear platform view. It is true, he said in Columbus, Ohio, a great responsibility rests upon me. We know what that task is. The time that he's on this train, seven states in the Union have seceded. Not only that, they formed a government in Montgomery, Alabama, and elected a president, Jefferson Davis. Elected a vice president, Alexander Stevens. Somewhat more moderate of what you might call the Southern fire eaters, those of the Southern cause, even corresponded with Lincoln a bit, now elected Confederate vice president. 
In some cases, armories and forts have been seized, none more notable than in South Carolina. There are other instances of post offices and armories seized. In effect, control of these states, South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, have been seized by governments. It's not without resistance. Georgia's vote between secession and no immediate secession or cooperation with the Union sees a little less than half. 37,000 people vote against. Some unionists even say it was a rainy day that day. Texas saw resistance by the state's governor, Sam Houston, who refused to see his state join the Confederacy. His position as governor was eliminated. In Florida, there was a convention, and 60 of 67 conventioneers voted for secession, reflecting the views of the white population in that state. One of them, though, a Seminole War veteran, raised his cane at the rest of the body and says, you have done nothing but bring hell on yourself. A military officer in Louisiana, William Sherman, warns local people there of a similar fate. You will bring upon blood in the state. Not everyone secedes before Lincoln gets on this train. North Carolina is still open. Tennessee, Virginia, Arkansas. Lincoln's birth state of Kentucky will not secede, though it's teetering at this time. These events were triggered by one thing, and that is Lincoln's very election. He's been pretty clear since elected that he's not going to speak about many things. And it's not just that he's being silent, but that he's said enough. Here's what he says in Columbus. I have received some degree of credit for keeping silent from others, some degree of depredation. I think I was right. There was too much action going on in the in the nation's capital for Lincoln to wander in without a view of the whole field that he would get once he occupied the White House. In Indiana, he gives this speech. You call for a speech. I have none to give you. If politicians and leaders were as true as the people, there would be little reason for the country to be diminished. In Canton, Ohio, I have no time for long speeches. If I should make a speech now at every town, I should not get to Washington until after the inauguration. And gentlemen, I have a little bit of interest in getting to the inauguration on time. He makes some variant of that speech in dozens of places. It was a precarious situation. An Atlanta newspaper swore that the South would never permit the humiliation of Abraham Lincoln being inaugurated, even if that meant that the Potomac would flow crimson with human gore. A Nashville paper predicted war to the knife, all for president being elected. When South Carolina secedes on December 20th, there are calls. Lincoln, do you want to get to the national capital now? But this is something that's tricky for him. If he comes too soon, it might be presumptuous. Obviously, if he comes too late, events might happen. And he's right on the edge of that. He stays in Springfield through the fall, through Christmas, through January 1861, and into the beginning of February 1861. People are visiting him. He sees scores of people from Lincoln on the Verge by David Widmer. In Washington, the weather was getting cold. The days were short. Southern politicians muttered vague threats about stopping Lincoln. And there were still ways that they might use their guile to alter the election result. 
A month after the election, an Ohio congressman wrote Lincoln from the Capitol, the sky is overcast. No one can foresee clearly what's in the future. Not only is the Buchanan administration seen as a nullity, non-actor, but there's a public scandal at this time. It was found the Buchanan administration had awarded contracts for work on the Capitol to insider friends. It's something to keep in mind because we're always thinking that Buchanan did nothing, which is, you know, we'll talk about is relatively true. But he's also facing corruption causes, and they're being prosecuted by both Northerners and Southerners. In fact, Jefferson Davis, as a senator, is slamming Buchanan at this time. Here's Widmer again. With each passing day, the gloom deepened in the Capitol as former friends stopped speaking and social events turned into a slog. Joke going around town proposed that the government rearrange the letters of its own name, replacing United with Untied. Wild rumors were whispered in the shadows of the Capitol that an ardent secessionist, Senator Louis Wigfall of Texas, one of the main rivals at this time of Sam Houston trying to keep Texas in the Union, who would be accused of plotting to kidnap James Buchanan in order to elevate the vice president. Northern leaders suspected that Southern leaders were negotiating with the British. Many diaries and letters at this time describe a possible invasion of Washington by militias that are forming in southern towns. Indeed, it was found that John B. Floyd, Buchanan's Secretary of War, had been taking arms and sending it to the South in anticipation of war. Another cabinet officer, Secretary of the Interior, had been providing minutes of the cabinet meetings to South Carolina officials so they would know exactly what the federal government was planning or not planning to do. Other members of Buchanan's cabinet Northerners and Southerners resigned in protest to him doing nothing for one side or the other. Capital is vulnerable. It's close to Southern states. It's bordering Maryland and Virginia. And two out of three of its residents, perhaps, favored secessionists. Former governor of Virginia, Henry Wise, openly advocated for an attack. The Richmond Inquirer, before Christmas, calls for Virginians to resist Lincoln's inauguration by any means possible. Thomas Hicks, the governor of Maryland, who is not unsympathetic to Southerners but is pro-Union, warns against a plot on January 3rd, 1861. They have resolved to seize the federal capital and the public archives so that they may be in a position to be acknowledged by foreign governments as the United States of America. These are at least the rumors going on. And one of the people behind this, it's alleged, the senator from Mississippi, Jefferson Davis, had just spent a lot of time on the Capitol design. It was something he had a great interest in, and he had been supervising the Capitol's renovations recently. William Seward hears these rumors. John Nicolay, uh, secretary to Lincoln, notes it to Lincoln. Friends of Lincoln's are writing things. We know that there's not a large U.S. Army there to protect the Capitol from anything. We know this because General Winfield Scott talks to railroad executives who inquire, and he says, I've been asking the Buchanan administration for more force, and it's not being provided. Then, uh, actually, the House of Representatives, in response to rumors about a conspiracy, right as um, Lincoln's getting on the train, they send a resolution to Buchanan demanding that he explain why there's a military force in Washington. And Buchanan actually responds, I have not more than 600 men here. 
and obviously they're to restore order and the like, but I have not more than 600 men. So great thing to telegraph at this time. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that there is a president in office. And this is one of the reasons that Lincoln's not going to show up in D.C. like a modern president might, you know, right after election. But that president is James Buchanan. He's been ineffective during his term. If he has been effective at all, it's been on the for the for the side of uh, slave owners in the South, let's say. And his he thinks his greatest accomplishment of his administration is the Dred Scott decision, something that he didn't even do directly. He's alienated both. Uh, Republicans and also Northern Democrats in his party. He does not get his presidential nomination. He's not uh, nominated. Parties split. And it's very common to say that Buchanan does nothing, but he actually does issue a whole bunch of words, 14,000 of them to be exact. And this wasn't a speech that he'd give in front of Congress. It's something that you draft up, send it to Congress, and it's printed in newspapers. So Buchanan's message of December 3rd is this. The general health of the country's excellent. Our harvests have been abundant. Plenty smiles through our land. Why is it then that discontent now so extensively prevails and the union of the states, which is the source of all our blessings, is threatened with destruction? Well, here's how he answers. The long-continued and intemperate interference of the northern people with the question of slavery in the southern states has at length produced its natural effects. The different sections of the union are now arrayed against each other. And the time has arrived, so much dreaded by the father of his country, when hostile geographic parties have been formed. I have long foreseen and often forewarned my countrymen of the now impending danger. There it is, you know, Buchanan, almost like a newspaper writer, an observer of things instead of the person who is the chief executive of the land. Oh, I warned you guys. And he goes, seven, eight, nine paragraphs in describing how it can not be denied that for five and 20 years, the agitation at the North against slavery has been incessant. How easy it would be, Buchanan says, for the American people to settle the slavery question forever and to restore peace and harmony to this distracted country. They and they alone can do it. So obviously, President Buchanan's saying, I can't, they can. All that's necessary is to is for the Southern states to be left alone. Now, it is some, it is 10 paragraphs in where he says anything about the secessionists who actually caused the recent event. And this brings me to observe that the election of any one of our fellow citizens to the office of president does not of itself afford just cause for dissolving the union. This is more especially true if his election had been affected by a mere plurality and not a majority of the people and has resulted from transient and temporary causes which may probably never again occur. In other words, don't worry about Lincoln. He's powerless and he's a fluke. Finally, in this section of the speech, he makes a point. In order to justify a resort to revolutionary resistance, the federal government must be guilty of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of powers not granted by the Constitution. And the most you're going to get from Buchanan is he calls for, look, just have an explanatory amendment to the Constitution so everybody feels good. There's no reason to change it. He believes protections that slave owners want are already in that constitution, but just do an explanatory amendment and everyone can go home.
Lincoln continues on his journey. On the train going through these towns, he proved to be the master of the I cannot give a speech speech. In Hudson, Ohio, you will see I am quite hoarse. In Philadelphia, I had thought I was here merely to raise a flag, but I'll say a few words. In Utica, New York, I have no speech to give you. I appear before you, for you to see me, and for me to see you. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there is plenty to speak about in these times, but it's well known. The more one speaks, the less they are understood. In Ashtabula, Ohio, I can only say how do you do and fare thee well. In Batavia, New York, I have not the time to make a speech. If I spoke everywhere, I'd never get to Washington in time for the inauguration. This wasn't all humility. It was exhausting, and energy had to be saved for the specific speeches he was to make, plus places would get jealous if he spoke at length in one town and not another. Uh, in Albany, there was a scrap between the governor of New York and the New York legislature. Both sent Lincoln invitations to Springfield. He accepted both of them, thinking, well, they're pretty much the same entity, right? And ended up accepting dinners to both. So he was invited to the governor's mansion and invited to dine with the assemblymen. And this became such a ruckus that it was a matter of debate on the floor of the New York Assembly. But there were times where Lincoln had to say something, and so he and he was getting tired of just saying, I can't give you one. <laughs> so he'd throw in a little line or a little spice. Here's what he says in Raveno, Ohio. Of those who might not have voted for me, let us make common cause. There was once an Irishman who told me that he voted against me and for Douglas. As I told him, support me now. If I am able to save the Union for four years, Douglas may well replace me. But if I am not able, there will be no ship for either of us to sail. In Albany, when a free people vote, it's altogether fitting that we put aside our differences. A free people should be one people who could disagree. Nor could they disagree with his compliment of the ladies in Wilbury, Ohio. In few instances are there so many good-looking ladies, and Lincoln bowed, as here. I can only say to you, good morning and farewell. He would use similar lines in other towns. I am here for you to see me and for me to see you. But as for the ladies, I get the better of the bargain. In one city, he simply turned around and said, let's have some better music from the band. And the band played Hail Columbia. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, after hearing the governor speak, Lincoln jumped on that. The best I can do is endorse what your patriotic governor said. That certainly was the case in Indianapolis, the second state capital that he spoke in, when Oliver P. Morton, who's going to become a very important governor for the Union effort, the governor of Indiana, he says these words, words that I think have a lot of meaning today. Oliver P. Morton. In every free government, there will be differences of opinion, and these differences result in the formation of parties. But when the voice of the people have been expressed through the forms of constitution, all patriots yield to its obedience. Submission to the popular will is the essential principle of Republican government. It recognizes no appeal beyond the ballot box. And while it is preserved, liberty may be wounded 
but never slain. A statue of Oliver P. Morton sits today in front of the Indiana State House. It's somewhat fitting that recently 100 Stop the Steal protesters gathered there. As far as I know, that particular meeting was peaceful, and I'm not sure if they were aware of who the man was they were under or what he had said. In Newark, New Jersey, he tried to pull off going up through a parade through the city with no speech, but the multitudes demanded it, and he would have to say a few words. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. my own ability, I cannot hope to succeed, but I must be sustained by the divine providence. Sometimes he'd salute the town. There are no people I'd rather gladly accommodate than the people of Delaware, he said in Wilmington, but I must be in Harrisburg in 24 hours. At Troy, New York, I've never seen such an assemblage so large and so orderly. I am the most grateful at this mark of regard, not because it's for me, but it's for the office that I am to hold. There were fun moments, too, on the train. I mean, it was a grueling trip. He would get sick at different times, get very tired, unable to speak. But in Ohio, the party had time for bodyguard Ward Lehman pull out his banjo and play a rousing version of Dixie to Lincoln's delight. It's not so strange as it sounds. Yes, the song would be used during the Civil War by the South, but the writer of the song was a Unionist who was very upset his song was associated with secession. Lincoln liked it. In other moments, Lincoln would play with Willie and Tad. Or if they got too rambunctious on the couch in their passenger car, he would swish them with a wave of his hand, tell them to stop. Crowds would cheer and huzzah and demand to see Lincoln and then also demand to see Mary and the children. The party would stop at elegant eating venues. Throughout the trip, there were no dining facilities on the train. Where they'd get the best. Dinners of oysters and boiled turkey, mutton chops and shellfish. Robert, the teenage son, would go to the engineer's car and learn to drive the train. Lincoln would also find time to work on his inaugural speech. It had to be good, he knew. 
Lehman tells the story about, at one point, it was thought to be lost. Lincoln thought he had left it at one of the stops. They searched every inch of the train. Finally, the papers were found. Could one imagine if Lehman's account is right? And sometimes Lehman gets questioned as a source. He certainly has his opinions. Um, The words of his great We Are Not Enemies speech might have been left in some railroad depot on a bench. Lincoln didn't always need to speak either. You know, we, people were speaking for him at these events, representing his positions without him having to encumber himself with specifics. Large banners in Erie, Pennsylvania said, Union and no compromise. Buffalo and Albany, New York had similar things in banners. No compromise. It was an odd mix in Washington, D.C. Some wanted Lincoln's train to go faster. People like Salmon Chase, more radical people would be considered at that time in the Republican Party. Get here soon. Others wanted Lincoln to take his time while they worked at a compromise. With Buchanan doing nothing, frustrating all sides. With Lincoln not yet in the city and also not yet taking power. This is the time when presidents didn't take office until March 4th. Congress was concerned and both the House and the Senate did act regarding these seceded states. And they did what Congress does best. They formed committees. There's one in the House, the Committee of 33, but the more significant one is that in the Senate, the Committee of 13. As Lincoln remains in Springfield, the governor of Illinois lends him his house. He's there for a while. Then the legislature comes back in session and he gets an office in the Johnson Building in the center of Springfield, retains two secretaries, local boy John Nicoley, who is the clerk of the Illinois Assembly, and Brown graduate John Hay. Hay has just come from Providence. He's been to, he sees Springfield as a miserable village, too small, a world away from everything. Lincoln corresponds with many people. There's descriptions of this time as all these cigar-smoking Westerners who come in to see him, and many people kind of warn him of what's going on, Congressman John Gilmer, who's a Whig in North Carolina, Gilmer writes him a letter and he tells him, you know, you you should be more friendly to the South. Maybe you haven't explained your positions. You should talk more. I'm disinclined at this moment to publish my thoughts, Lincoln says to him. Have you read my Chicago platform? December, he meets with New York Whig leader Thurlow Weed, who wants him to appoint a Southerner to the cabinet. Gilmer's one of the names mentioned. He also does something interesting. He goes to Chicago and meets with the vice president-elect, Hannibal Hamlin. Now, this is kind of a big step at the time. And it's also clever because Lincoln correctly knows that 19th century vice presidents aren't, don't count much in the newspapers. Hannibal Hamlin's able to slip to Chicago without it really being noticed much. Lincoln meets him there and gives him a letter to hand to William Seward, letting him know that he will be his secretary of state. Hamlin passes that on to Seward. The newspapers are delighted. This is a sign from Springfield that Lincoln's going to take action because Seward is considered to be, at least at this time, more radical than Lincoln. Seward's delighted. He thought he might be in contention with many other people for that job, but he also has a mistaken notion that he's going to be in charge. So it's going to kind of be a co-presidency. This will determine some of his actions to come. 
Lincoln's also getting word that there's trouble. He's also receiving tons of hate mail, people writing letters about different ways that if he ever gets to Washington, D.C., he'll be killed. Now, it's important to say that uh, Buchanan sends an emissary to Lincoln, and that is Duff Green, a Kentuckian who's now 69, who had been friends with Andrew Jackson. President Buchanan wants Lincoln to make some kind of statement, to show some kind of compromise. Lincoln makes it clear to him, any concession I make now will put us on the road to a slave empire. I haven't even set one foot in D.C., and we haven't done anything to inhibit slavery whatsoever at this time. And already, the other side wants compromise. That's the point he makes to Green, which is as far as Lincoln and Buchanan are going to cooperate. Congress forms its committees, and it's telling that in the Senate, there is a mix of both Democrats and Republicans. There is concern, and at least the moderates are dragging the extremes of the other sides into a committee. This um, committee of 13 in the Senate has Democrats and Republicans, Stephen Douglas and Henry Rice, who are kind of Northern Democrats, but also fire eaters, that's Southern Democrats, who Robert Toombs of Georgia and Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. Also Republicans, Ben Wade and William Seward, people who might be considered more radical than the president-elect. John Crittenden of Kentucky is the key player on this committee of 13, and he's really does much to shape the final proposals. But they meet, they discuss things, they make proposals, they offer what in Washington City is would be considered compromises. Robert Toombs of Georgia. He makes his proposal. Everyone in the United States who owns slaves get to bring them everywhere. There is U.S. protection of property, including people everywhere. This is his proposal. Anyone who helps escapees will be brought to justice. Congress will pass a law that no law regarding slavery will ever be passed by Congress unless a majority of the slaveholding states agree. Same with constitutional amendments, too. Douglas, Mr. Kansas-Nebraska, who's already busted up compromises in the past, is still at it in 1860. His proposals, kind of similar to what he had done in the past, popular sovereignty. He wants new states created uniform as much as possible. It's part of the problem is you have big states like California and Texas. Let's make little states uniform as possible where you can actually reflect the views of those people who have settled in those states. Stephen Douglas proposes, have fugitive slaves treated like fugitives from justice, even in the territories. He wants to treat runaway slaves as criminals. Then Douglas says, let's make an addition to the Constitution. No one of African race can hold office or vote. All very strong amendments, but you'll notice something. There's nothing for the North in the bargain. It's entirely aimed at trying to keep the Southern states that have seceded from the Union in the Union. And that's really where Stephen Douglas is at this point. Um, one of the comments he makes is, you Northerners just keep acting like secession hasn't happened. I, I, I'm tired of hearing about it. Like It has happened. We have to adjust. Just to provide another view, uh, another member of this committee who arrives a little bit late is William Seward. Seward has a couple of proposals. One is that escaped slaves who have reached a northern state Someone comes to bring them back. They get a local jury trial. But he also says, or Congress will make no law banning slavery. This actually, this proposal that Seward makes, he figures is okay with Lincoln. 
Uh, we don't have an expressed, uh, it is the expressed viewpoint of Lincoln. We don't have an express support for a specific amendment. He says uh, later when he becomes president that, uh, you know, he sort of assigns it to Congress's agency. But he doesn't disagree. And the Chicago platform that Lincoln adheres to and points to when people ask him for statements does nothing to stop slavery in the places where it exists in the United States. It's about extending slavery into the territory. No concessions extending slavery into the territory, Lincoln writes in one letter as president-elect and underlines extending three times. So you do have a congressman from Ohio, Thomas Corwin, who's going to produce an amendment, which would actually have been the 13th Amendment. But it's very different from the 13th Amendment today, which bans slavery in the United States. This 13th Amendment, Corwin's Amendment, would prevent Congress from banning slavery. It doesn't use the word slavery. It says anyone held to labor or service by the laws of the state. So Corwin, Seward, Republicans don't want to get the word into the Constitution when it's not there or provide anything that might look like they're supporting the institution. It's merely respecting, in this case, laws of those states where it exists. The Corwin Amendment actually gets passed by Congress. And it's the only one of these proposals that will actually get passed by Congress. And it's approved the day of Lincoln's inauguration. Lincoln, as president, actually gets to send this proposed 13th Amendment to various states. And Ohio, Kentucky are among the few states that actually ratify it. It never gets anywhere near the three-fourths. Lincoln sends it to southern states as a letter of Lincoln sending this Corbett Amendment to the governor of Florida, even after it seceded, because Lincoln does not acknowledge that secession. So he's still following the rules and sending a proposed amendment out to the states for ratification. Few of the people proposing these amendments are supporters of slavery. They're supporters of the Union and trying to keep the Union together. There's no danger of it happening. Because these proposals are dead on arrival. In fact, in some of the discussions, Jefferson Davis just walks out of the room. Um, Both Republicans and Democrats at various stages are going to be opposed to these types of compromises. So that in, in this one area, the best friend of radical Republicans are the Southern fire eaters who want no guarantees, no promises. Jefferson Davis... His position is clear, settled for nothing but absolute protection in any state in the Union, in any territory in the Union of the United States for what he considers his property. There's one more thing to say about Seward. Crittenden almost wanted to rush this committee before Seward arrives on it, thinking that he'll be more radical. But Seward actually is more compromising than people think. So much so that people in New York are going to get upset with him you know, warn him about how far Webster went and what happened to his career. His own wife's going to warn him not to go too far. But one of the things he proposes, and this one is without Lincoln's support, is he says, let's right now make the New Mexico Territory a state that permits slavery and throws that to a mix as a proposal. This shocks a lot of Northerners, and it's going farther than Lincoln wants. But at this point, Seward sees himself as independent, both of his New York constituency and probably a little independent of Lincoln because he thinks he's going to be the senior man in the administration. And he's going to, Secretary of State is a very powerful position in the 19th century. 
in an administration. Finally, you get John Crittenden, the old Whig from Kentucky, and his proposal. It has many components, but the major component is this. Take the Missouri Compromise Line, 36 degrees of longitude, 30 minutes of latitude, anything north of that, slavery's not permitted, anything south of that, slavery's permitted, but take it all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. That means the South can have the Western and the Southwestern states and territories, and the North can have the Northwestern states and territories. It's It could potentially split California, and there is a movement by California ranchers in the South of California um, and people who live in California will know there's that divide between North and South. Well, it was present in 1859 and 1860 to perhaps have a section of California, a separate state, and permit slavery there. But all of these proposals are going to be dead on arrival. They're not popular with the Republican bunch. I mean, Benjamin Wade says, a government that compromises with traitors is not worth keeping. John Sherman, who's going to be administrations later as Treasury Secretary and now a Republican congressman from Ohio, says the positions that all these compromises that people are making, the positions are against what the majority of people voted for. They're not, not only are they against what Lincoln supported, but against what Stephen Douglas supported, some of them. Charles Sumner makes it clear, yield now and you'll have secession every election. But here's something that's important to know. The president-elect feels virtually the same way. And the president-elect, quietly writing letters to various people, becomes very influential in this process. He tells a congressman, hold, as if chain of steel. To another congressman, James Hale, who wants compromise, he says, we just ran an election on principle plainly stated to the people. Now we are told to surrender to those we have beaten. To Trumbull, uh, Congressman Trumbull, he writes, no compromise on extending slavery. To Thurlow Weed, he takes issue with Crittenden's plan. Extending the Missouri line or popular sovereignty would lose us everything we gained by election. Also, it would lead them to Mexico or Cuba. A year will not pass, and they'll ask for Cuba, he writes to another congressman. This has even led scholars to say... Lincoln's as much responsible for the Civil War as anyone for not compromising. But as in it, there's a couple of points to, to counter that. One is that he does not provide resistance to attempts to make an amendment to stop Congress from acting on the states where slavery exists. He also supports minor issues like repealing personal liberty laws. These had been established in various states, which basically blocked the work of bounty hunters who might be set up. He reluctantly... Uh, agrees that, that that's an issue they can trade on. The small issues. He's just not willing to give on issues of consequence when he feels it's contrary to the election result that just happened in November 1860. You know, and he, like many other people, make the point, and I think it's something that's obviously important today, we're not going to negotiate with violence. It's what he, paraphrasing him, what he's saying is simply like, we haven't done anything and you already want us to negotiate. We're not going to take political actions just to stop you from throwing away the political process. We're not going to negotiate with violence. If you engage in violence, you take yourself out of the process and into something else. Uh, Criminal acts, acts of war, acts of rebellion that can be dealt with by the constitutional government. We're not going to negotiate to stop you from doing that. 
He says it plainly to John Gilmer, the congressman from North Carolina. You believe slavery is right and ought to be expanded. I believe it's wrong and ought to be restricted. But there's no reason for either of us to be angry at each other because we're both right in support of the status quo right now. We're, We're talking about future policy. But you believe this should happen in the future. I believe that should happen in the future. Neither of us is talking about what's going on now. We should not be angry with each other. That's at least his point. Lincoln has another feeling that Southerners are getting in a huff. He calls it a hot haste about secession because they're creating a false image of him. Kind of like, you know, fake news, right? False image of him, you know, coming up with all these stories about what he's going to do. And they know that there's only a few months away before he's going to get in office, and they're going to find out that there was no threat. One more speech from Lincoln, this at the Mongahela House in Pittsburgh. Notwithstanding the troubles across the river, Lincoln points southward, there is really no crisis springing from anything in the government itself. In plain words, there is really no crisis except an artificial one. What is there now to warrant the condition of affairs presented by our friends over the river? Take even their own view of the questions involved, and there is nothing to justify the course which they are pursuing. I repeat it then. There is no crisis, excepting such as one as may be gotten up at any time by designing politicians. My advice then, under such circumstances, is to keep cool. You know, it could be a misguided, you know, he is in Springfield and not, you do question the physical distance that Lincoln had before he engages on his train ride creates a kind of like chain of steel in his mind. He's not being influenced, uh, but he's also not there where he's going to be expected to compromise at every moment. So it's an interesting thing. You could ask the question, like, was he right in his determination? Did he go too far in thinking, like, when they find out the reality, they'll be okay? That really isn't. His election alone had triggered a change. But uh, needless to say, while he doesn't make a giant speech about these issues, about the Crittenden Compromise, about what's going to happen later, which is Virginia is going to decide, well, we're not seceding right now. We're going to have call for a peace convention in D.C. They try to get Franklin Pierce to head it. He's indisposed. They invite Van Buren. He doesn't want any part of it. They get John Tyler, the former president, to head it up. It's welcomed by Buchanan. Buchanan hugs some of the members of this committee when they come to see him at the White House. And he prays that they'll do everything they can to cause peace. And essentially, this peace convention just, you know, they do have representatives from over 20 states, but it basically rehashes what Congress couldn't do. And all this occurs while Lincoln's on his train ride. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In Cleveland, there's hope and promise. The mayor and citizens' committees, thousands of citizens, flags draped on all of the buildings of downtown. The city hall, the Weddell House, the post office, the Cleveland Regiment Light Artillery marched, as did the Light Dragoons. The city council whisked by Lincoln in carriages, omnibuses with workers from the local steamworks, representatives of local Cleveland businesses, fire departments, and even what must have been a sight. A fully rigged ship, full of flags that they were pulling through the streets of Cleveland, representing the stevedores and merchants of that city. Lincoln is touched by this. It's a confirmation for him of this philosophy, of what he's fighting about. Where there is free labor, there's prosperity. Lincoln notes, in a community like this, whose appearance, as I may say, whose well-built houses, whose numerous schools and all other evidences before me testify to their intelligence. I am convinced that the cause of liberty and union can never be in danger. In Buffalo, the crowds were so large that Friendly as they were, they were a problem. An estimated 75,000 people, along with former President Millard Fillmore, are waiting for him. As John Nicoley related, the cheering began with the multitude way down the tracks of the railroad, gathering volume as the train rolled to the depot, and continued through the mass, extending through the street until it became a roar mightier than that of the booming of a cannon. The crowd was unprecedented in the history of popular gatherings in this part of the country, says Lincoln's other secretary, John Hay. As the train rumbled in to the great train depot that could hold 10,000 people with just a few policemen, the crash was terrific. Urging, pushing, shoving towards the president-elect, endeavored to force an entrance. The president-elect narrowly escaped unpleasant personal contact with the crowd, Hay says. The police put themselves in between the crowd and Lincoln, incurring themselves a pressure which the hug of Barnum's grizzly bear would have seemed like a tender embrace in comparison. 
Eventually, though, President-elect Lincoln and former President Millard Fillmore made their way through the streets of Buffalo in a carriage. Receptions followed in other cities in the Empire State. In Syracuse, he makes a joke about his silence on issues during the train trip. I'm on this platform, but don't associate me with other platforms, Lincoln says. In Utica, despite now thousands coming to see the tall figure, in Schenectady, a cannon placed trackside to welcome the president-elect and his party discharges too close to the train, shattering windows, blowing open a door, and covering some of the passengers with broken glass. Fortunately, no one was hurt. That matter resolved, Lincoln made the same joke about platforms that he made in Syracuse and bid all farewell. The following, written by an aged and highly respectable citizen of Rochester, was handed to Mr. Lincoln during his brief stop in that city. To Abraham Lincoln, President-elect of the United States, passing Rochester. Honored sir, I have watched you day by day in your progress from Springfield and caught an echo of the cheering shouts from a patriotic and confiding people that greet you on your way to the capital. Earnest prayers go up from millions of true hearts, all crying God bless him. One of these millions, now in the wane of life, who yet wishes the glorious old flag of the stripes and stars to float over his grave, comes to join his feeble voice to this swelling acclaim, and to say, with a full heart, and tearful eyes, and good hope also, God bless you, sir, an old man. And I hope what was conveyed in this cast, and what I learned during the research for it, is that, you know, you... you, You hear a lot about how divided the nation was during the Civil War, and it certainly was. But there was also an overwhelming win for Lincoln, and that's what I tried to convey in the 1860 election cast as well. Don't let that, the fact that there were some sectional differences, and definitely among a body such as the Senate, which is not really fairly distributed then or now among the population, don't let that... Uh, fool you a bit into thinking that the country's exactly divided. There are millions of people who agree with Lincoln. And getting a letter like that from an old man who just wants the flag to be preserved so that it can be over his own grave, you know, how do you think that that kind of thing will have an effect on encouraging Lincoln to continue in his stances? And Lincoln goes down the Hudson and makes a grand entrance to the city of New York, the largest city in the country. Among the many people who are going to see Lincoln for the first time is the poet Walt Whitman. Lincoln will make his way to the Astor House, where on a balcony he'll make a speech. There is no television in this era, yet, by my own count, at minimum, a half a million people have at least seen Lincoln on this trip, and probably more. Travels by ferry to New Jersey, goes through the parade in Newark. I should note, as part of his tour, before he gets to Philadelphia, he makes a stop in the state capital of New Jersey in Trenton. And here his speech is a little guarded because uh, he's, he's in persuasion mode, because New Jersey has not given Lincoln all of their electoral votes. The state is very split. It's not as some would sometimes picture it as, a, you know, Confederate supporting state. There are large and active Republican movements in New Jersey, but there are also strong Democratic movements and some that lean towards sympathy towards the South. Lincoln's speech in Trenton is thus, you know, 
You give me this reception, as I understand, without distinction of party. I learned that this body is composed of a majority of gentlemen who, in the exercise of their best judgment, in the choice of a chief magistrate, did not think I was the man. I understand, nevertheless, that they came forward here to greet me as the constitutional president of the United States. Here's what Speaker Tease of New Jersey says to Lincoln. The bravest, the wisest, and the best stand still in doubt and awe of the position of our national affairs. I am happy to give you, sir, the assurance of the descendants of those whose blood was shed in the cause of liberty upon this soil, that our people will heartily cooperate with you in all constitutional efforts for a speedy and honorable settlement of the differences which now unhappily distract our country. Uh, There's an interesting incident at the Trenton House that gives you an idea of what it's like to feed this presidential elect party because it's so large. And more importantly, there's so many throngs of visitors wherever Lincoln goes. Here's what Hay says, a very hungry Hay says about the Trenton House where lunch was to be served. The dinner or rather lunch was profuse and admirably served, but the delay experienced before the dining hall was thrown open seemed to have been unnecessary, as it certainly was tedious and irritating. The crowds were unmanageable. The police moved moodily about, expostulating and uncertain what to do. The wrong persons were admitted through private doors, and the right ones debarred therefrom. Everybody called for the landlord, who was not to be seen. The president was conducted in state through the kitchen, where a number of men in paper caps and smelling a burnt pie saluted him gravely and made gestures with ladies. The lunch was admirable, but imperfectly arranged, and those who had forks could find but little to put those utensils in. Those surrounded by all the luxurious varieties of cold cut had no forks. However, by dint of perseverance, about 300 people managed to eat or drink something at someone else's expense, after which the suite departed. From Trenton, Lincoln moves on to an almost unanimously supportive crowd in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Here's where Lincoln prepares to give a speech, and he's quite moved by being in front of this austere building. There are, there are, there is a very large crowd assembling in the mall in front of the Independence Hall, and there are even spectators who have climbed up to trees to get a glimpse of him. This is the where the only photo on Lincoln's train trip was taken. And he says this, I have pondered over the days of the men who assembled here and adopted the Declaration of Independence. I have pondered over the toils that were tendered by the officers and the soldiers of the army who achieved the independence. I have often inquired of myself, what great principle or idea was it that kept this confederacy so long together? It was not, Lincoln says, the mere matter of separation from the motherland, but something in the Declaration giving liberty not alone to the people of this country, but hope to the world for all future time. He says something else. He says, if this country cannot be saved without giving up that principle, I'd rather be assassinated on this spot than surrender it. That seems dramatic, and you could even say eerie uh, and prophetic, based on what we know happens years later. But the reality is that Lincoln on this very trip has already been confronted with the prospect of this dire result. Uh, In Illinois, an alert engineer looks ahead on the train tracks and sees a large metal object, an obstruction on the tracks that wasn't supposed to be there. 
signals to brake. At that time, the locomotive had no brakes. You would execute a signal that the brakeman in the back of the train would see. They're able to stop the train well in time. But detectives and engineers that look at it later say, had the train hit at full speed, the train would have been ripped apart, derailed, and the party would have been gravely injured or killed. It was no accident. A knowing saboteur had put that object on the train. At Cincinnati, before the train left, a carpet bag of unknown ownership was found deserted in the president-elect's car. Railroad employees noticed it because no baggage was allowed to be in the car per the rules. It was open and it contained a grenade along with a timing device and it was set to go off. Fortunately, the carpet bag and the grenade was removed and detached and dearmed. Railroad, dete- railroad detectives said enough explosive was in the bag for the entire party to be killed. That's two days on the train trip and two attempts on Lincoln's life. Then, at Baltimore, so far from Independence Hall, the train would go to the state capitol, politics, Harrisburg, and Lincoln would address 5,000 people. And then he was to go to Baltimore. But the route from Harrisburg down to Baltimore, there is talk that it would be a perilous ride. Military or quasi-military organizations supposedly offered to volunteer to provide protection to the train and the tracks. There were three such groups. It was rumored that these groups were formed of societies in Baltimore, including Southerners from Mobile and New Orleans. Baltimore had a lot of visiting mechanics and workers that would come to the city who do damage to the track, burn the bridges, prevent Lincoln's inauguration, and perhaps even kill him in an effort to then end the government there, take over Washington, and prevent help from arriving. Local citizens confirmed the talk to the railroad and the railroad's detectives anonymously. Alan Pinkerton, one of the best detectives in the country, was put on the job. Detectives infiltrated these groups, confirmed their disloyalty. The Baltimore police chief denied that there was any plot involving his town citizens, but he was also a person who called Lincoln voters in the city, about 1,000 of them, the scum of the city, and could not be considered a friend. There are different opinions about what's going on here. For Ward Lehman, there's no real balance needed. Lehman merely suggests himself as protection and that Lincoln carry a revolver and a Bowie knife. This is absolutely opposed by Alan Pinkerton, the detective. I will not have it said that the president-elect entered the national capital armed. Here's what Lehman says. He's not too pleased with Pinkerton's performance. Uh, taking with him a couple of men and women, he, uh, the detective went about his business with a zeal which necessary marks Layman says, of course, they readily found out what everybody knows. Baltimore was seething with political excitement. Numerous strangers from the far south crowded its hotels and boarding houses. Great numbers of mechanics and laborers out of employment encumbered its streets and everywhere. Politicians, merchants, mechanics, laborers, and loafers were engaged in heated discussions about the anticipated war and the probability of northern troops being marched through Maryland to slaughter and pillage beyond the Potomac. It would seem like an easy thing to beguile a few individuals of this angry and excited multitude into the expression of some criminal desire. That's how Lehman feels about Pinkerton. On the other hand, Pinkerton feels about Lehman that he is a brainless, egotistical fool. 
Nothing's ever confirmed. But there's enough rumors, there's enough anonymous information getting to Pinkerton and the railroad that looks like there might be trouble. The head of the U.S. Army, General Winfield Scott, is consulted by the railroad. And while he cannot confirm such a plot, he can confirm generally that there is the potential for trouble and that his attempts to reinforce or to get help from the current administration were not acted upon. And so the plan is hatched. Lincoln's train trip calls for him to go from the state capital of Pennsylvania at Harrisburg after the reception the next day to Baltimore, and then from Baltimore to Washington. There is a reception, a lunch, and perhaps a speech planned in Baltimore. But instead, president of the railroad supervises cutting telegraph lines between Harrisburg and Philadelphia temporarily. Trains that are scheduled for transit to Philadelphia are sidelined at 6 o'clock at night, 22nd of February, 1861. Mr. Lincoln and the governor of Pennsylvania, Curtin, walk out of the hotel and towards the carriage, and the governor loudly says, please proceed to the executive mansion, but then quietly tells the driver, please proceed to the Pennsylvania Railroad. And a special train prepared for the president-elect, his bodyguard layman, and Alan Pinkerton, the detective. Here's what Pinkerton writes years later. I was on the special train which conveyed the presidential party from Philadelphia to Harrisburg, having with me a telegraphic instrument in order to connect with the wires should an accident occur making it necessary. Shortly after the arrival of the train in Harrisburg, the superintendent directed me to proceed with a locomotive and passenger card to a road crossing at the lower end of Harrisburg and there await his coming. About dusk, a carriage was driven up. Mr. Lincoln stepped out and entered the passenger car. The signal was given to the engineer, and we were on our way to Philadelphia. The lamps of the car were not lighted, and in darkness we went swiftly along until we reached Downington, where we stopped for water for the locomotive. At this place all gentlemen, excepting Mr. Lincoln, get out of the car for a lunch. A cup of tea and a roll was taken to him in the car. We were soon again on our way to Philadelphia, where we arrived between 10 and 11 o'clock. A carriage was found waiting, into which Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Lamont stepped, and were driven off rapidly without attracting the least attention, not even the engineer or fireman of the train knowing of the illustrious passenger they had just conveyed from Harrisburg to Pennsylvania. That's Pinkerton's account. Now, it's very important that even though Philadelphia is not a dangerous city at this time for a union-supporting president, it's still important that they transport Lincoln secretly through the dark streets in a carriage unmarked because although they've cut the telegraph wires from Harrisburg to Philadelphia, and everyone thinks Lincoln's still at the executive mansion and Harrisburg or at his hotel, they're not going to cut the wires from Philadelphia to Baltimore this time. As Mr. Lincoln's dress on this occasion has been much discussed, Laban says, it may be well to state that he wore a soft, light felt hat drawn down over his face when it seemed necessary or convenient, and a shawl thrown over his shoulders, and pulled up to assist in disguising his features when passing to and from the carriages. This was all there was of the scotch cap and cloak so widely celebrated in the political literature of his day. Yes, so what's going to happen is after Lincoln's secret train trip is revealed to the press, there's going to be people who poke fun and say that he traveled in disguise or that he um, 
went in a scotch cap and cloak hid from people that way. Um, there's definitely going to be mixed feelings, particularly by by Republicans who is this the best way for the president-elect to arrive? And then those that are, con- you know, it's definitely going to be a balance of safety and politics. This from the Lincoln inaugural train by Scott Trostel. At 10.50 p.m., the night train headed out of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore station on the south side of Philadelphia. This line of railroad passed through the marshes between Gray's Ferry and Chester, Pennsylvania. It crossed the Pennsylvania-Delaware state line passing through Wilmington as it progressed towards its terminal at Baltimore. This railroad was not continuous. After crossing into the state of Maryland, the railroad encountered the wide mouth of the Susquehanna River, just above where it empties into Chesapeake Bay. At Perryville, Maryland, there existed no railroad bridge. The PW&B relied on two ferry boats to cross the Susquehanna and get to Harvard de Grace on the southern shore. So Lincoln's transported by a ferry boat for part of this trip. There's no incident. At 30 minutes after 3 o'clock, the train reaches Baltimore. The railroad came into town at the southeast side, skirting near the harbor. The station had a long barrel vaulted train shed over the tracks. Now Lincoln is at a city where he's not well supported, a city that is known for political violence, a city that in just a few months is going to attack Union soldiers as they go from one train station to another. Lincoln's only advantage is that no one knows he's here and it's the dead of night. It's it's three in the morning. He's taken on a special track. His car is pulled because you have to change stations in Baltimore at this time to get to the Washington train. There's a regular train that goes between Baltimore and Washington and has a sleeping car. In order to get that sleeping car reserved, they present the case that there is a sick passenger that needs the car to themselves. And so Lincoln and Pinkerton and another detective and Lehman are in this party. Pinkerton has a few people in Baltimore and using a relay of hand signals is signaling, making sure that things are okay. Every once in a while, he'll send a signal and get a signal back that that all is well. But he doesn't have an army here. This is a hostile city. And really what's protecting Lincoln at this time is as much as many six people and a curtain in a passenger sleeping car. The description we have of it from one of the detectives in their report is that Lincoln is so large that he can not fully fit in the sleeping car. So he has to uh, lay in in an odd manner that he's relatively quiet. Once the curtains are closed, he might talk in an undertone. And at one point, there's this large sound of crashing metal. Bam! Bam! Someone's banging against like a metal surface. And one can only imagine what was thought. Now, it turns out it's a watchman, an Irishman. It's described by Ward Lehman that uh, was trying to wake up a clerk in the ticket booth who's sleeping and not supposed to be sleeping. Like, Captain, it's four o'clock. And he keeps saying that. Captain, it's four o'clock. And he's banging. And and no matter how hard it bangs, it seems like this ticket agent isn't waking up. So he keeps saying it. And it's Lehman jokes. Like he didn't even note the passage of time. For 20 minutes, he's banging on this booth and saying, it's four o'clock. According to Lehman, Lincoln is not startled at all. In fact, he makes a joke out of it. 
Here's Lehman. In due time, the train sped out of the suburbs of Baltimore, and the apprehensions of the president and his friends diminished with each welcome revolution of the wheels. At six o'clock, the dome of the Capitol came in sight, and a moment later, they rolled into the long, unsightly building which forms the Washington Depot. They passed out of the car unobserved and pushed along with the living stream of men and women towards the outer door. By six o'clock in the morning, Lincoln is successfully transported to Washington, D.C., ahead of his inauguration. God be praised, he says. And a new world of politics will begin. There will be disappointed people up and down the railroad line between Harrisburg and Baltimore, expecting to get a glimpse of the president-elect, only partially satisfied by seeing Mrs. Lincoln and the family. There will be a slightly angrier crowd at Calvert Street Station in Baltimore, expecting to greet the president-elect's train, only be told the president's already in Washington. Here's how the Philadelphia Inquirer describes it. The crowd surged and pressed, and one after another of the suite emerged as he best could from the cars. The shouts and yells became almost deafening. One gentleman was taken for the president-elect, a tall man, and narrowly escaped injury through the anxiety and curiosity of those assembled. Others were forced over the platform several feet in height, and others jammed against the side of the cars. The cry of pickpockets was raised and provoked a rush, and if possible, additional confusion. Back in Baltimore, he leaves behind a lunch for him of oysters, gumbo, lobster salad, and jelly, stewed tomatoes, canvas-backed duck, mince pie, and Lafayette cakes. The railroad telegraphs this message. The package has arrived. Or to hear Ward Lehman's story, the the railroad telegraphs, plums arrived here with nuts. Lincoln being plums, Lehman being nuts. I like his version better. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you want to help support us, we do have the Patreon site, patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. There, there's over 130 content items for you. And uh, you'll also help support the show. It can be as little as $3 a month. Thank you for those who have supported us recently. Much appreciated. Appendix. I had already selected this topic long ago, researched and acquired some sources, really after uh, it was pretty clear that we were going to have a new president and that this would be topical. The recent events involving the insurrection and the attempt to storm the Capitol, perhaps hurt lawmakers, disrupt a vote, accounting of the Electoral College for the president is unprecedented, and it's not planned to be something where I'm using these events as a parallel today, but I can't help but say that it fits. And obviously, these are such horrific and novel events that you go back to 1861 because there isn't a lot else to go to in terms of a time of such domestic insurrection. And it can be hopefully slightly comforting um, that even in such a time in American's history that there were 
people who were able to get the government functioning. And this train trip was my, very much part of it. And Lincoln is a tough one because you keep hearing about like everyone brings it up and it has the danger of being overplayed. You know, we hear so much about Lincoln. How could it possibly match today's events? But Lincoln works as somebody who could be heroic despite chaos all around him. My thoughts are with the uh, Capitol Police who, and Metropolitan Police who unfortunately had to suffer injuries and death even from what was a horrible event, way out of control. Uh, there are not a lot of precedents for what happened, really. You know, you have certain times when uh, the Capitol's been threatened in some manner, where there's been large demonstrations where that would outnumber on a person-by-person basis security forces in the Capitol. And that's, you know, Coxley's Army, 1894. But the result of that is Coxley tries to run up the stairs and is beaten and eventually jailed. The Bonus Army marchers of both 1932 and 1933, midst of the Depression, these veterans and others are coming to Washington to try to get early payment of their bonds. And actually, Herbert Hoover sends in Douglas MacArthur, six tanks, and burn down a camp that's across the river from D.C. because it's a national security threat. You have events like the 1970 student protests where Washington was almost literally occupied. But in each of all these cases, security is handled much better. Uh, in the case of 1970, I mean, there, there are strong barricades that would prevent the overrunning of, of any of these buildings. You have some minor incidents in the 60s, like the overrun of the um, Indian Affairs Bureau. It's really not comparable in any way to a building with the stature and, more importantly, the responsibility and the um, cent being the center of government, such as the Capitol. I can recall a time myself when the Capitol was pretty... Um, you know, other than a metal detector in the front building, not really. You could go in at any time. You can certainly recall that, uh, doing that on some occasions. In 1998, there was a horrible incident where a gunman entered and attacked and killed two Capitol Police officers who were protecting lawmakers and visitors at the building. And stricter rules were set up for the Capitol after that. I don't know what more I can add to what's already been added except to say how unprecedented it is. And, you know, history is useful as a tool. It does not mean that there will always be an exact parallel for novel times. It certainly doesn't. I would just caution that there are many times in history where people felt the times were so different that there was chaos. You have two impeachments. First time a president's ever been impeached twice. And... While I don't usually opine on political actions, I, I, I feel the need to say it here. You know, if you look at why there's an impeachment, it's for actions and also lack of actions. And in the second alone, even if you can't establish the first, um, you look at the events of that day and you think about what a president is supposed to do and absolutely nothing was done. Absolute neglect of the office. So it's not surprising to me there's now a president being impeached twice. What's the other side of it now? Um, because of the procedure used, because of the lack of time here, you have an impeachment without a hearing. And the, the, the criticism has been that that could set up a precedent. And it's possible it will. In fact, I think there will be precedents. I think that was going to happen anyway. And that if the Congress changes in 2022, 
You'll probably see the impeachment device used. That might have been done because of the first impeachment early in 20, uh, late in 2019. I think that you could see this kind of historic device of a impeachment to uh, put the president in a kind of checkmate uh, so that the House impeaches and then waits the Senate on a constant basis. So anytime the president ever loses two-thirds of the Senate, they're out. And possibly the vice president out as well. Um, there's two sides to that if you want to examine it. I think you need something to reestablish Congress's powers in the modern age. The president has been made too powerful. It's still a result of the Cold War and again reinforced by the war on terror. And so many statues have ceded power to the president and Congress needs to find ways to take some of that back. On the other hand, you have the balancing danger that you could lead to an, a too much encumbered president. That's a possibility too. So both those things are present and always have to be thought about as we apply history to politics of today. I think that's all I'll say for now. Everyone stay safe, stay well, and thanks for listening.